Uh, This morning we begin a new study uh, in a new book. So for the rest of the year, we're going to be studying the book of Galatians, uh, working just line by line through it to try to understand its purpose, its meaning, uh, and the importance of the book and how to apply it to our own lives. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. And if you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs, you can find our text on page 972, page 972. Uh, We're going to be looking at these first nine verses this morning. And before I read the text for us, there's a few things that we should be aware of really anytime we approach the Bible. The first thing we need to know is what kind of literature we're dealing with. Uh, Scripture is composed of writings from different authors uh, at different times in history uh, using different styles of communication. And through all of these distinctions, the Holy Spirit inspired and preserved the Bible for our edification and encouragement. Uh, Throughout the history of mankind, God has revealed Himself through His Word to His people And for us today, we know that God's Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. Friends, we must recognize that God speaks to us through His Word still today. Recognizing God used human authors and historical situations helps us to interpret the Bible correctly, so we must ask a few questions Uh, when we approach a new book, first is, what kind of literature is the book of Galatians? The answer is that Galatians is a letter, uh, sometimes referred to as an epistle. Uh, It is a letter written by the apostle Paul to his audience. This means that Paul has a, a reason for writing to them, and that reason is crucial for our understanding in applying what we read to our own lives. If we can understand the purpose and the intent behind Paul's letter, then we can take the Spirit-inspired principles and apply them to our lives today. Uh, Since Galatians is a letter rather than, uh, say, a narrative uh, of historical events, uh, we have to piece together what the the occasion is based on the content of the letter. Uh, We have to look at what Paul says to determine what must have been going on at the time, what called for such words. As far as as Paul's letters go, uh, which there are many of in the New Testament, basically Romans through Philemon uh, are all of Paul's letters, uh, this one is perhaps the most fiery. Uh, It is the most pointed of all of his letters. He speaks directly and swiftly to his audience because of what is at stake if they ignore his warnings. Uh, Like any of Paul's letters, he's making an argument of some kind. Uh, So we must follow that argument based on the teachings of Jesus. Uh, For the churches in Galatia in particular, we'll soon find find out that the very faith in the gospel is what is at stake. Uh, Paul's goal in the letter is to remind them of the true and uh, unadjusted gospel, the gospel of grace and freedom. Basically, what you have going on in the book is that the Galatian Christians are being persuaded by what some have called Judaizers. Uh, Simply put, uh, Christians who say that to be a Christian, you have to continue to observe Old Testament law. 
uh, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you must still submit to the Mosaic law. And this has been referred to as the Galatian heresy uh, because it does not teach salvation by grace through faith alone. It teaches salvation by faith plus works. Those works are observing the law. Naturally, this propels Paul to articulate the great doctrine of justification, that sinners are declared righteous, they are justified in God's eyes through their faith in Jesus, because he has paid for our sins by his death on the cross. Because justification is such an important part of the gospel, Paul jumps right into the controversy in these first nine verses. And with that background in mind, let's read our passage together now. Galatians 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. One of the major differences between an epistle like Galatians and a narrative like, say, Ruth or Mark, which we've gone through, is everything is dialogue, which means we have to take smaller bites as we go through the book to understand what Paul is saying in each section. These nine verses give us a good introduction to the rest of the letter as they show us the occasion, the urgency with which Paul is writing as well as a few major themes of the book. But the main idea of these first nine verses, I would put this way. To change the gospel is to abandon God. Therefore, we must know it and protect it. To change the gospel is to abandon God. Therefore, we must know it and protect it. I have four points for you this morning, just taking a few verses for each point following what Paul is doing in each of these verses. And my first points, my four points are Paul's commission, Paul's compassion, Paul's concern, and Paul's correction. And my prayer is that these verses would remind you of the importance, the priority of the gospel and its precision, as well as the peace that we have through the grace of our Savior Jesus. So point one, Paul's commission. Verses 1 and 2, Paul's commission. Uh, These first two verses are really easy to just skim right past because they're pretty much a signature. Uh, So in our day, if you write a letter to someone, you likely will finish the letter by saying, yours truly or sincerely, Jason Rivette, or your name. Uh, 
If you sign a legal document after you read all the terms in agreement, you're required to sign said contract at the bottom with your name. It's how you authorize things as well. Well, in the ancient world, uh, they did it the opposite way. They would provide the name up front, which really makes a lot more sense. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten a letter from someone and you, and you had to jump down to the bottom to see who's writing it and then go back and reread it. This makes much more sense, doesn't it? We know right away who is speaking. Uh, this, this is the way that Paul wrote, and you can tell this from all of his letters. Uh, who is Paul writing to? The Christians or the churches in Galatia, he says. And we're not exactly sure which churches specifically. Uh, Acts gives us some ideas. It's clear that there were some churches that he visited and perhaps planted most likely on his missionary journey. Uh, but Galatia itself was a region. It was a Roman province. Uh, that Paul had gone to already. And so these believers likely would have been new converts that he loved dearly. Uh, We also know that like many of Paul's letters, uh, they quickly circulated to Christians all over for general instruction. That's the reason why Christians today love to read uh, the New Testament epistles especially, uh, because while they still require careful study and interpretation, and there are, of course, difficult portions Uh, generally they're more straightforward and applicable to us. Uh, We can take most of the instruction and just directly apply it to our lives. What's most significant about these first few verses is you'll notice Paul is quick to explain what he means that he's an apostle. Uh, And there's some confusion about this word today, even among Christians, uh, because the word could be used to describe an office, an authoritative office in the early church, uh, but it can also just be used to uh, identify a messenger, a sent one, a one who is sent. And in this case, I think Paul means to imply both meanings here. What's clear is that Paul is not simply saying he just has a message for them, but that he speaks with a message directly from God himself. He has been sent by God and by Jesus. Look again at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And notice the emphasis Paul places on who sent him, not man. He's not speaking to them as a mere man with some authority, but through the very head of the church, the Savior of the world, through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him for the dead. How's that for Christology? Jesus and God the Father mentioned equally there. The very power and authority that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power and authority with which Paul proclaims his gospel in his ministry to these Christians. Paul's basically like a Christian FBI agent knocking at the door of the Galatians holding up his badge. This is who I am, an apostle sent from God and Jesus. So Paul begins his letter reminding them who he is and why they should listen to his teaching. Specifically, his teaching came from God. And this is recognized elsewhere in the New Testament as well. In fact, 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says that Paul's writings, some of which are hard to understand, which we can all relate to, uh, he said, uh, are full of wisdom along with the other scriptures. Peter recognizes the inspired authority of Paul's writings Uh, as well. 
Paul reminds them of the message he first preached to them, the gospel that they were in danger of turning away from. Well, before we move, this is Paul's commission uh, directly from the Lord. But before we move on to the next point, there are just a few brief applications I think we can make from this to our lives today. Uh, First, God's word, the word from God, is the highest authority for Christians. Uh, This is why we preach what we call expositional sermons, Uh, sermons like this one in which we uh, try to expose the meaning of the text, we try to understand the author's intent, and then apply it to our lives. Uh, This is why we are beginning a line-by-line inductive Bible study uh, to understand Scripture because it's authoritative. This is why we sometimes read longer portions of Scripture as part of our service. service. This is why we choose songs that tend to be more wordy than some of the top hits on Christian radio. It's because they're full of truths that we see in Scripture, and so we want to proclaim those truths when we gather together. This is why the most important document for us as a church is our statement of faith. Why everyone who becomes a member has to sign it, because the statement of faith, we think, articulates the teachings of Scripture clearly, the essential doctrines. We have the Spirit to understand Scripture for ourselves, so we don't need to be told by, say, for example, a modern-day prophet or a pope what God says to us. We can read it for ourselves. Uh, To bounce off of that, a second application for us is to simply spend more time in your Bible. Spend more time in your Bible. Uh, The Bible is God-made, not man-made. God inspired it and used human authors to record it. Uh, When reading Paul's commission, every one of us should perk up because he's saying that what he has to say is coming directly from God. Do you realize that we could think about any portion of Scripture that way. Anytime you open up God's Word, no matter where you are, you could say something like, this book is not from men, but from Jesus Christ and God our Father, who raised Him from the dead. The Spirit inspired or breathed these words into the minds of the authors who wrote them down, and the church has accepted them because of the authority they carry ever since. If we recognize the value and the importance of God's Word and the ease with which we can access it, we should prioritize it in our lives. Don't you agree? A lot of Christians make New Year's resolutions to read through the Bible in a year or or start a new plan. Uh, This is a good thing. (laughs) This is a really good thing. Uh, I highly recommend it. But if uh, you are not currently reading uh, regularly, Don't wait until the new year begins to make that resolution. Uh, Start as early as this afternoon. I can promise you that you won't regret spending more time in God's word from now on. Uh, I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time uh, that afterwards I look back on and I think that was not a great use of time or that didn't really benefit me at all. That was a waste. Uh, But I've never met a Christian who wishes he spent less time in Scripture. So Christians, spend more time in your Bible. Charles Spurgeon famously said to his students, he said, visit many good books, 
but live in the Bible. A third point of application. Be very wary of anyone who claims to be a a modern prophet or apostle. Uh, There's just no biblical reason to think that the office was successive or passed down to future generations. Instead, all the data seems to show that the authority Paul claims is unique to eyewitnesses of Christ. He calls himself one who was untimely born, but who Jesus, the risen Jesus, still revealed himself to. And he numbered beside himself the other 12 disciples. Paul makes the point in these verses that what's even more important than the status of the messenger is the content of the message itself. And we'll get more to that later. But we should do the same today. We should judge the content of the message, the accuracy of it according to Scripture. And we should prioritize those things over a particular teacher's status or popularity or attractiveness. That's point one, Paul's commission. Point two, Paul's compassion. Paul's compassion in verses three through five. Uh, His compassion is basically seen in in the blessing that he writes to them in verses three through five. Paul often begins his letters this way, by blessing his recipients, which I think is just a beautiful way to address other Christians, especially since he's speaking to them from the authority of God and Jesus. He begins in verse 3 with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of the blessings they have as Christians. Now you'll notice if you read all of, other, all of Paul's other letters, they pretty much all have the same beginning where he mentions both grace and peace. And the only exception to this, uh, by my observation, uh, was the two letters to Timothy. Uh, And he still says grace and peace, but he adds mercy in there. Uh, I think showing the relational closeness he has with Timothy. Uh, But these two words are significant for the Christian, grace and peace. Uh, Some have said that the reason he uses these two words is to basically greet both Hellenistic or Greek, Greek Christians as well as Jewish Christians uh, because Greek-speaking Christians would have used charis, the greeting, grace. Jewish Christians would frequently use shalom for peace. Therefore, it was a way for Paul to kind of greet everybody. Uh, but I think the significance actually goes much deeper than that. And the reason I think that is because peace specifically throughout the Bible is the end goal for all humanity. Uh, It is what mankind once had in the Garden of Eden that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned and were thrown out, putting humanity and creation under a curse. Uh, From that point, peace is what has been longed for, specifically a restoration of the fellowship with God and His creation, a peace between man and His Creator, freedom from guilt and a holy life. That is why themes like rest and Sabbath are so prominent in the Old Testament because they pointed forward, they modeled eternal peace. Peace is therefore the goal of all humanity, and it is what is promised to God-fearers in eternity. But before Christ, peace could only be hoped for. There was only the law that shed light on sin. God gave the law so that we would know his character and be able to measure ourselves 
about how sinful we are. But the law did not bring peace. It brought death. And notice what Paul says we are delivered from in verse 4. He said Christ, uh, Christ gave his life for our sins and, quote, to deliver us from the present evil age. What is the present evil age exactly, you might be asking? Uh, the present evil age is simply referring to the age in which mankind rebels against God. Uh, scripture elsewhere uh, explains that the world is under the prince of the power of the air, that Satan is at work in the world. There are some who uh, say today that humanity is generally good, uh, that mankind generally has a disposition to be good. Uh, and I want to just say to that, really? Do you actually think so? And I'm not saying that there's no good in humanity. I think there is some. But sin is universal. It touches every culture at every time. Follow the news for a couple of weeks and just observe all of the world's problems. In fact, don't even look at the world around you. Just look inside yourself. Our sinfulness reaches to the core. Our hearts are idol factories, as John Calvin said, creating things to worship and to distract us from God left and right. One pastor said, we have a way of taking things that God has given us, good things that God has given us, and just totally corrupting them. God gives us good gifts to enjoy, like food, and we become gluttons. He gives us sex, and we become adulterers and pornographers. He gives us plenty, and we covet what our neighbor has. He gives us rest. Rest is a gift from God. Uh, he designed the week to include a Sabbath uh, so that we would not be working seven days a week. And we take rest and we become addicted to leisure. Or we make the opposite mistake and we become workaholics. The evil age means we live under the curse of sin. It means we cannot help but distort God's image by rebelling against him. As we do, we offend our creator and accrue his judgment for our treason. That is what his grace frees us from. He makes us new creations through Christ's sacrifice. He gives us the Holy Spirit to change our desires, and it frees us from having to choose sin. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ, you don't have to choose sin. You're not bound by it. He has freed you to live a different kind of life, one that chooses and prefers righteousness. Your sin no longer identifies you. Rather, instead of sinner, you are a saint, clothed in Christ's righteous robes. We still live in a fallen and cursed world, and we feel the effects of that in our life. In fact, we grieve it, which I think is another sign that we have been freed from Satan's grip. We'll continue to live in this evil age until Christ returns and finally conquers. But we are not bound by our sin like we once were. Sin does not separate us from God. The veil has been torn in half. That's why we as Christians can be confident that we have peace 
because of Jesus. Romans 5.1, one of my favorite verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus accomplishes what the law could not by living a perfect life and dying in our place. That's what Paul reminds them of in verse 4 when he says, Who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that overcomes the boundary of sin between God and man. And here's the best and most important part of the gospel, that it is of grace. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Peace is the ultimate goal. Peace with God is salvation, eternal life. But there is only one way that we receive it, not by observing the law or doing anything ourselves. The only way for us to have peace is to receive it by the grace of God. Jesus' very life and sacrifice was an act of pure grace from God to us needy sinners. Grace is the means by which we reach peace. We have peace because we have been shown grace in Christ Jesus. So friend, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian, first, thank you for spending this time with us. You're always welcome here. I wonder if anyone has explained the grace of Jesus to you before. All too often, people just assume that religion is just a list of things to do to gain God's favor. Perhaps that assumption comes in part by a correct perception of our innate sinfulness. But following Jesus is not actually about a list of things that we need to do. Uh, Following Jesus is about the thing that Christ already did for us. It begins with the bad news that we can't ever do anything about it ourselves. But the good news is that Christ died in our place taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we could be saved. We have nothing to do with earning God's favor. He loves us as our creator already. He loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die for us. Why would God be so kind to sinners like us? Look at verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's God who receives all the credit and the glory for this great grace and power because salvation was accomplished by Him and Him alone. It's only to be received by us. Now some have objected and said, wait a minute, isn't repentance and faith a kind of work? Isn't that the the key in the ignition? that basically uh, allows salvation to come to someone? To answer that objection, I would simply provide an illustration from the master illustrator, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He said to not consider repentance and faith as a work. Repentance and faith is much more like a child reaching out to receive an apple given from a parent. It would be foolish 
for one to look at the hand taking the apple and to take credit for creating the apple. It would be foolish for the hand to then take credit for retrieving and giving the apple. The hand merely receives the good gift given by the giver. That is the role of faith. The work has been done by Christ, and through our faith, we simply receive his grace in our lives. This short greeting from Paul is, therefore, a reminder of the gospel itself, that every believer has peace with God through the grace of Christ's sacrifice for us. That's why Paul explains that we have peace and grace from God and Jesus who gave himself to deliver us from sin according to his will. That's a beautiful description of the gospel. And just notice as a side remark, it's impossible to take away from this description the idea of some kind of cosmic child abuse at play, like Jesus was helpless and the Father just poured out wrath on him for the rest of mankind. God did not pour out his wrath on his undeserving son against his will. The Bible is very clear that Jesus went to the cross willingly, that he submitted to the Father's plan. All glory goes to God because he deserves all the credit. He did all the work. That's why the gospel is good news, friends. Because it's not about achieving an impossible standard. It's simply about receiving grace purchased for us by Christ. And it's with that reminder that Paul then shifts to his concern for the Galatian Christians. Point three, Paul's concern. Verses six and seven, Paul's concern. One interesting feature in this book is the absence of any kind of thanksgiving after the blessing. Uh, Normally, Paul begins his letters with his signature, grace and peace, and then some kind of word of thanks to those he's writing to, uh, how happy he is to hear of their faith, that they're growing in the Lord, about the positive reports he heard from others. But in Galatians, there's none of that. He jumps immediately to the core issue, that there is no other gospel from the one they were taught when they came to faith. Look again at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul's writing to them on high alert because they're turning from the most important thing he taught them, the gospel of Jesus. Paul says he's astonished, appalled, he's in disbelief. You can kind of understand where Paul is coming from, uh, if it's true, and it seems likely that he did plant these churches. They're a result of his ministry. It's like he was just there, shared the gospel with them, left them, turned his back for a short while, and then as soon as he hears about them, they're, they're believing other messages. Notice how closely related the message of the gospel is with God himself. Paul doesn't say, you're deserting me as a friend or me as an apostle by turning to a different gospel. He says, you're deserting, quickly he adds, you're quickly turning, him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
the Galatians are in danger of turning away from God because they are turning to another gospel. They're believing a message other than the one that Paul proclaimed among them, one other than what he has articulated in the opening verses of this letter. Basically, they've turned to a message beyond the grace of Jesus. He quickly states that there's no other gospel, uh, which is not a contradiction. Uh, He's simply saying that they are turning to another belief system and treating that other belief system as if it's the gospel. Uh, But anything other than the gospel is not really good news because it is not salvation by grace through faith. And the Bible speaks this way about other things as well. For example, uh, you'll read somewhere that Israel was turning to other gods. And then in other places, you'll read that there is only one true God. How can we reconcile these things? The point is not that these idols are real gods. They're stone, they're wood, they're bronze, gold sometimes. They don't move or breathe, and yet people will worship them. They fashion them with human hands, and then they bow down. The idol can't move itself. The prophets mock them for this. But similarly, there are messages that differ in content from the gospel that people treat like the gospel, a message they place at the center of their faith above all else, yet a message that differs in content from the gospel of grace has no power. It does not save. It only deceives. For the Galatians, it was the issue of the law. They were tempted to believe that they had to still obey the law, which undermined the sacrifice and sufficiency of Christ. It implies that his death was not enough but that more is required of us. You or I may not be tempted to resort back to Jewish law. It's not in our history. Uh, As far as I can tell, there's not any ethnic Jews in this church. But people have changed the message of the gospel in different ways all throughout history, and people still do so today. Uh, For example, in the Middle Ages, the church would sell a certificate of salvation for a certain price. So if you were wealthy enough, regardless of what you believed, you could simply buy yourself some assurance, hang up the certificate on the wall. The church at that time also taught that you could reduce your sins by paying penance, or you could reduce the sins even of a dead relative by doing penance for them. This improper distortion of the gospel is what Martin Luther and other reformers spoke out against. When they discovered the true gospel did not add any additional unbiblical requirements. Today we have different gospels like these. Think about the prosperity gospel for a moment. A gospel which teaches that if you have enough faith... God will bless you financially and sometimes bring you good health. The prioritize prosperity in this life more than prosperity in eternal life. Their gospel focuses more on their own actions than on Christ's actions. There's also the gospel of affirmation, we can call it. That decides that loving and accepting others, however they live or however they choose to identify, is more important than calling them to repentance and faith. 
So we have churches that endorse and even celebrate things that the Bible specifically calls wicked. There's the gospel of humanitarianism that decides that meeting physical needs is more important than meeting spiritual needs. Now, Christians should care about practical needs, of course, and often throughout history they have. They've led the charge on providing humanitarian support. But for sinners in danger of eternal condemnation, to avoid sharing them the news that could save them from it, from it in the name of providing for a temporary time on earth that the Bible calls a vapor, this is a false gospel. Another message that has distorted the gospel, uh, we can call the gospel of subjective feelings. Uh, It likes spirituality and the idea of God, but it doesn't root its beliefs in the truth of God's word, but only subjective feelings. Now, there may be good intentions behind all of these beliefs, but they rob Jesus of glory. And they deceive people into thinking they're saved when they might not be. This is what the Galatians face, the danger in front of them. Uh, There are others that I could mention. There's no shortage of historical uh, examples. But the point is this. A Galatian heresy will always be a danger for us as well if we don't make it a point to know and protect the gospel. So just a few points of application for us today. First, look to the Bible to answer life's questions. It's not up to us to decide what the gospel is. Only God defines the message of salvation, which is what he has done through his son Jesus and the witness of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's so important that prophets or The Apostle Paul specifically stated that the word that they were given to pass on to others came directly from God himself. So look to the Bible to answer life's questions. Second, never grow tired of the gospel. It's what we live by. It's been said that the gospel is like the ocean, too vast for man to ever fully exhaust the beauty of, and yet that same ocean stretches out onto the shore where a child can wade in and experience it. Never grow tired of the gospel. Third, rehearse the gospel regularly. Remind yourself why the gospel is beautiful. Memorize gospel passages in Scripture like, like Colossians 2, 11 through 15, or like 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, like Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. 1 John 5, 10 through 12. These are marvelous verses to know and memorize. They'll give you the vocabulary uh, to know how to share the gospel with others as well. A sub-point to this application is this. If you want to draw yourself closer to God or to get to know Jesus Christ better, Spend more time meditating on the gospel. Notice that to depart from the good news of Jesus is to depart from God himself. Fourth point, Paul's correction in verses 8 and 9. Paul's correction. 
We looked at Paul's credentials, his, his blessings for the believers, his concern over their potential heresy, and now we get his first words of instruction to the churches about what to do about it. Verses 8 and 9 could basically be the application for us today for this section of verses. I think it applies just as much for us today as it did for them then. This is what Paul says. But if even if but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Clearly, Paul really cares about the precision of the gospel. As we've already observed, to change the gospel message is to depart from God, to distort the gospel. It's, it's to depart from the faith completely, to believe in something else entirely. Uh, J. Gresham Machen articulates this well in a classic book called Christianity and Liberalism, uh, in which he just points out that liberal beliefs, for example, uh, liberal Christians that don't believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, or they don't believe the historicity of the Bible, uh, these liberal beliefs are not just a version of Christianity. It's not just a variant of the same thing, like a virus that adapts and evolves over time. It's a completely different and new religion. It's another belief system altogether. So what is Paul warning? What is Paul's warning to them? His warning is to reject anyone who brings the message contrary to the true gospel. Anyone who distorts the message of salvation should be considered accursed, anathema, which basically means they will fall under the condemnation of God. To let someone be accursed is like saying, may the judgment of God come upon you. The Apostle Paul warns of the danger of distorting the message, so much so that he puts himself in the judgment seat. He says, if we or an angel from heaven preach to you a different gospel, don't be fooled. It's a shocking thing to hear an apostle say something like that. If I or an angel told you differently, curse us by God. But it goes to show the trustworthiness and the sufficiency of the gospel. God does not change, and therefore the good news of Jesus will never stop being good news. Many have observed that to add or change the gospel makes what was once good news not good news at all. It works with both addition and subtraction. Paul repeats his instruction for emphasis in verse 9. There could be no mistake about what Paul is saying. There's one message that is from God, and then there's everything else. The authenticity of the gospel has more to do with its content than the messenger. The authenticity of the gospel has more to do with its content than the messenger. It's a good reminder that humanity sinned after being tempted by a fallen angel in the garden. Judas was one of the 12 disciples and would have been called an apostle if he didn't make a shipwreck of his faith by betraying Jesus. Paul warns the Corinthian church in his second letter that Satan sometimes disguises himself as an angel of light. So beware of a change in the message, regardless of the messenger. 
two brief points of application before we conclude. Trust in God's word over your own subjective intuition. Let scripture have the final say. I'm not saying don't think, certainly be rational, consider what scripture has to say, but let scripture have the final word. Second, this is very practically uh, why we are a congregational church here at First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights. Notice who Paul is writing the letter to, not the leaders or the pastors, but to the churches as a whole in Galatia. He's not just speaking to the leaders, but to all believers who have the Spirit inside of them that can know, determine good doctrine. Any pastor should be able to say, just like Paul does here, if I depart from the gospel, it's your job as a church to remove me and replace me with someone who does preach the true gospel. This is why it's uh, so important to exercise your congregational muscles uh, in things like member me- members meetings. This is why it's important that you do sign the statement of faith. Because you're not just saying you agree with everything we teach. You are saying uh, that you, yourself, as a member of the church, believe the statements. That protects the purity of the church and the message of the gospel from ever going astray. Because of this careful membership that we exercise ensures... Uh, as best as we can, that the members of this church uh, believe in the true gospel and have been saved by grace. We must remind ourselves of the importance of the pure gospel as it's taught in the scriptures. One of the ways we do that is by observing the ordinances that Jesus gave his church. Baptism symbolizes death and new life, the washing of sins symbolically, And today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a reminder of the costly sacrifice by which we are saved. Oh, God gave us these natural rhythms, these visible displays of the gospel, so that we could regularly be reminded of it, so that we could know and protect the gospel. To change the gospel is to abandon God. Therefore, we must know it and protect it. Let's pray.